You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And I did start the last talk off with a bit of an introduction about the Mount St. Helens Creation Center, and that spent some time, so I'm going to get straight into this. Now, this talk is entitled, Where Birds Eat Horses. And you think, that is a weird, weird title. What on earth is he on about? This talk is not really about horses, nor is it about birds. It's about the language of evolution. It's about the language of evolution. And I wanted a nice, easy-to-follow system that people could use where you could look at popular science articles, high school textbooks, science documentaries, and you could analyze them and find out where the evolutionists were not talking real science. And this system that I have put together is able to do that for you, even if you do not have a degree in science, even if the last science that you ever did was your high school graduation, or given that you may have been asleep for the last few years of high school, about grade nine science, okay? So... You should be able to do that with this. That's my aim. Some of the material that I've used, the basic headings that I have used, I've actually stolen with permission from another creation speaker called Mike Riddle, who runs a ministry out of Boise, Idaho. Uh, very, uh, I would encourage you to uh, uh, go and listen to him wherever he's speaking in the area. But uh, I have developed the system around that with his permission. Well, let me explain where I'm going, and you'll see where the title comes from shortly. Some years ago, the BBC, in conjunction with the Discovery Channel, made a series of documentary films using CGI called Walking with Dinosaurs. Do any of the old folk here remember that series? In fact, you can get hold of it on DVD, so you can show it to your young people, and I know that many high schools show it. The documentaries show dinosaurs walking around because it's made with CGI and the whole thing is narrated in the same manner as a wildlife documentary series. Now you can see the advantage of that, that it's nice to be able to talk about dinosaurs while you can see them walking around on the screen. The disadvantage is that you are lulled into a false sense of security that you think they must have some scientific evidence for how these dinosaurs are moving around. And yet you'll find that the CGI used for walking with dinosaurs is every bit as imaginative and every bit as fictional as Jurassic Park. You didn't think that Jurassic Park was a documentary, did you? How many people here have seen Jurassic Park? Are you with me, by the way? Okay. So you all, including your pastor, went to see that evolutionary propaganda film. <sighs> I, I watched it too, but that was for, re- that was for research purposes. <laughs> okay. Walking with Dinosaurs proved such a success that, the sto- of course, the story ended in evolutionary terms in 65 million years ago. Please don't think I believe that figure, but that's what the evolutionists said. 65 million years ago, dinosaurs died out. That's what they claim. 
So the next series, they wanted a sequel, and they called it Walking with Prehistoric Beasts. And that was not quite as popular, but that ran from 65 million years. It was supposed to show the evolution of birds and mammals. Now, there'll be less if you saw that. Did anyone here see that series? Can you remember it? Not as popular. And yet I found it fascinating. And there was one scene in the very first episode that starred a number of characters. The first character, and I'm going to show you a short clip from this uh, uh, scene. The scene in the first episode lasted 20 minutes. I'm not going to keep you 20 minutes with this, okay? But I'm going to show you a scene, nevertheless. Um, a two-minute a two minute scene from that 20 minutes. In this 20-minute sequence, you, it starred a bird called Gastornis, which uh, they claimed is a large, extinct type of parrot, giant parrot about eight or nine feet tall, this huge beak, terrifying animal, holding the same position in their imaginary um, prehistoric world as the Tyrannosaurus would have done in their imaginary world millions of years earlier, okay? Also in the sequence, you will see this creature known as a Propaleotherium. According to this program, Propaleotherium was an ancestor of the horse. Just after the Eohippus or Hierocotherium, this is a Propaleotherium, an early horse about the size of a small dog. And so in the film, you will see these animals walking around, looking like horses, doing the same sort of actions that horses do. Now, does anyone know that Propaleotherium walks around looking like horses and sort of point, uh, hoofing the ground like horses do? No, of course they don't. All we've got are bones. Not only that, but I, when I went to the Natural History Museum at the Smithsonian in D.C., there was a display on the evolution of the horse there, and it was very interesting that someone, quite by accident, had put the fossil Propaleotherium next to a fossil tapir. And do you know what? They look almost identical. So I believe that this thing didn't look quite like that. I believe it's a real fossil. Propaleotherium really existed. We've got real fossils of them. There's quite a few of them around. I just don't think it's an ancestor of the horse. I think it's just a smaller breed, a smaller species of tapir. Okay, because different species is no problem for us in creationism. You know that, don't you? They're all sort of within the same kind. You can get development within kind, but that's within the same genetic pool. No new genetics made. Okay, so we've got uh, Gastornis and we've got six Propaleotheria in this video clip. Now, the sound in the video clip is not brilliant. That's my fault because of a mistake I made earlier that I cannot seem to recover. So I've put subtitles in it. Okay, so you'll be able to read the subtitles. And here's a, a two-minute clip from the opening episode of um, uh, Walking with Prehistoric Beasts, episode one. No, do you know what we haven't done? This is my bad. I better go back to this. Sorry. I haven't plugged the um, sound system in. I haven't plugged the sound cable in, so that is completely my fault. I should have realized that. Let's go and find it and plug it in, and you'll be able to do it. Okay. You can't trust me to do anything right here. Okay, there we go. The guys at the back worrying then, wondering what on earth has gone wrong with the sound system. It's uh, just a simple matter of plugging in, and it's mended. Okay. There we go again. Okay, here's Gastornis, there's Propaleotherium, here's the film clip. <laughs> 
Ethereum appear less alert than usual. Throughout the afternoon, they have continued to eat the fermenting grapes off the ground. They contain only the smallest amount of alcohol, but it is enough to dull their usually sharp senses. This little horse is a drunk. This is a bad time to get careless. Look away now. The leptic tidium scurry to safety. Just. This is a world where birds eat horses. Now you know where I got the title of the book. This is a world where birds eat horses. What sort of world? Well, let me promise you that in the making of that film, no propaleotheria were harmed. Because <laughs> they don't exist. That's a CGI computer animation. It's a story being made up. Have we any clue that those birds ate uh, horses like that? I've already told you, I don't think those small animals were quite that shape anyway. I don't think they were horses. But I'm quite sure that in that, uh, in the time where there are animals that are different types around, probably, it's certainly not a different era, almost certainly a different part of the world. Um, but, uh, cause I think the la- the geologic layers are not to do with different eras. I think they're to do with different environments. They're all formed from different environments. And the lower ones were where the flood water reached first. And the higher ones were where the flood water reached afterwards. But the fact that you have um, fossil gymnosperms in the same places as you have fossil dinosaurs means that gymnosperms did live at the same place as dinosaurs. Dinosaurs walked through giant tree ferns, which is what the gymnosperms were. Uh, dinosaurs lived in those sort of forests in a different place. And because they're lower down than where mammals are, I think they were closer to the coast than the mammals were in the pre-flood continent, and they got flooded first. That's a little bunny trail, but just for free. But there you go. What about this particular clip? It goes on for 20 minutes, in fact, to explain all that. How much of it is science? Well, actually, surprisingly, some of it is real science, because all those fossils were discovered here in a famous fossil graveyard called the Messel Pit in Germany. And one day, they found a number of fossils. They found in one place... A one fossil Gastornis, which is a genuine real bird. I don't know that it ate meat. We'll come back to that in a minute. But one genuine real bird. Six fossil Propaleotheria, which is why they had six in the film. And also 
One fossil bunch of grapes. Did you get that bit? They wove that into the story, didn't they? The grapes have been fermenting, so the little horses got tipsy, and therefore the reaction time wasn't good enough, so the Propaleotherium got it. Are you seeing where I'm tracking now? There's some real science. And they have used that like a set of story cards in a high school English lesson so that you could weave a story around it. The 20 minutes is fiction, but that is fact. And that is what you will find with these sort of scientific articles that this book is addressing. There is real science there, but it's precious little. And I need to show you how to spot the fiction from the fact. Is that okay? That's what we're doing here. By the way, I've just said there's 20 minutes of imaginative fiction yet. And by the way, if you look on the BBC's website today, they'll say that they've made some more discoveries and they now think that Gastornis wasn't even a carnivore. So it's a whole complete waste of 20 minutes in that film. It wouldn't have eaten horses anyway. But nevertheless, it makes a good title for my book, Where Birds Eat Horses, The Language of Evolution. So let's go to episode two on uh, Walking with Prehistoric Beasts, where we meet this man. He is an Andrew Sarkis. Isn't he lovely? Uh, he's a type of, um, well, he looks very much like a wolf, but he's a bit like a leopard as well. So do you think this is part of the wolf family or part of the leopard family? What do you suggest? Part of the wolf family or part of the leopard family? Um, and I will just mention, by the way, that later in the program, you see him eating a turtle, because it's a very bloodthirsty program, eating a turtle on the beach. Is he, is he related to the wolf? How many people think he's related to the wolf? A few of you. How many people think he's related to the, to the leopard? A few of you. How many people think it's not related to either the wolf or the leopard? Who's going to be brave enough to tell me what it's related to? The evolutionists tell us that that is related to the goat. The goat. You can see that, can't you? <laughs> it's a huge, vicious, fierce, carnivorous goat. Anyone keep goats here? You better watch your step if it's got this in its genes. Oh, man. I'm told that pigs can eat you if they uh, get too hungry, but I didn't know goats could. That's what happens in the wild, you know, in the Serengeti. Lions hiding behind trees as the goats prowl across the prairie. <laughs> Dreadful. Here's three facts mentioned in the program about the Androsarchus. And by the way, I should mention to you that the fact that this Androsarchus is on the beach, they claimed was, was important because they claimed that this animal should not have been on the beach. They claimed that it should have been inland, but here they deliberately showed it for a be uh, on the beach for a reason, because they said that it was going to evolve into something else. Now, I'm going to leave you stewing on that for a moment, and in a moment I'm going to ask you the question, what do you think this animal was supposed to evolve into? What do you think this animal was supposed to evolve into? So we know that the Andrew Sarkis then, they say... I'm not saying this is a real fact. I've put the word facts in quote marks. Have you got that? This is what the program said were facts, that the Androsarchus would not normally on the beach. The Androsarchus is a very large wolf-like carnivore, and that the Androsarchus is not actually related to the wolf because it's got hooves. It is a wolf in sheep's clothing. <laughs> and that's not my joke. They actually said that on the program. 
And we will laugh at it for a minute and then we stop and we think, they used a biblical quote and deliberately twisted it to make a point. Now it's gone quiet. Now you see what I'm saying. They deliberately twisted a biblical quote to make us laugh and make a point. Yeah, we can laugh at it because we have a different starting point. But it's important that you understand that that's where they're coming from. That it's clear that they have, maybe subconsciously, but a deliberate attempt to undermine our belief in the Bible. Okay, with all those so-called facts, you want to see a fossil of this animal, don't you? So you can see its fossil hooves, is that right? Okay, let me show you a fossil of the animal. Here it is. Okay, there's a fossil of the animal. And uh, you can see there that the upper skull looks just so much like the skull of a goat. You're familiar with that, aren't you? Um, uh, hold on a minute, Paul. Show us the hooves. There aren't any. They've never found fossil hooves. That is your lot. From that upper skull, they have created the entire animal and said that that looks like a goat, therefore it must have had hooves. Okay. If this wasn't serious stuff that is often mentioned without the, without the fact, without the real facts being put in here, because that's obviously a real animal, it's a real fossil, so it must have existed. It must have been alive. I'm saying it may not have looked like the picture they painted. How do you get from that that it had spotty fur on it? You know, there's all sorts of stuff there. But it was clearly an animal, but they have assumed it was related to the goat. Now, I ask you to think what they think, what they think it evolved into. I don't think it evolved at all, but what do they think it evolved into? Any guesses? Remember, the clue is that it was supposed to be inland, but now it's come to the shore. You actually saw one in the previous two-minute clip, a creature called Ambulocetus there, which was a relative of Andrew Sarkis, uh, trying to snap at those little jumping creatures called Leptictidium. They think it evolved into a whale. Whales have evolved from carnivorous goats. Here's an earlier so-called relative of the whale called Mesonychid. And I took this photograph, uh, or the previous photograph, in the Natural History Museum in South Kensington in London. Mesonychid, I says the uh, uh, um, display case, is an order that may have been ancestral to cetaceans, whales and dolphins. So that evolved into that, okay? While I was looking out over that gallery, over this magnificent model, and I mean full marks to the people at the Natural History Museum in South Kensington for making a full-size blue whale and showing its size relative to the elephant and the hippopotamus down there that you can't quite see, but they're there. Full marks to them for going to the trouble of doing that. It's beautiful. But behind me, as I took that photograph, was a display case that shows the evolution of the whale. So this will convince you that everything we've been talking about this weekend is a waste of time. This is your proof of the evolution of the whale. There's a mesonychid fossil, two nostrils on the end of its skull. Here's an ambulocetus, two nostrils halfway up its snout, closer together. Here's a fossil dolphin, one nostril. The two have come together on the, uh, as a blowhole on the top of its head. And so there you've got the evolution going from left to right. Are you convinced now? Mesonychids and Androsarcuses and so on, they've, uh, they, those type of animals evolved into whales. There's your proof. It's there in the Natural History Museum. Are you telling me they're liars? Are you telling me they made mistakes? 
Uh, well, obviously, we could look at the ages of those fossils, wouldn't we? So the ages must be, the one on the left is the oldest, isn't it? Is that right? No, it isn't. The one in the middle is the oldest. According to their dating methods, not mine, according to their dating methods, the one in the middle is the oldest, and the one on the left second, and the one on the right third. So why have they arranged it in that order? Why? And how did they get that? They have decided that the one in the middle, because it's older, must have been one of the last ones before they died out. So they give it a large error bar below, whereas the first one was one, uh, was one of the first, and therefore it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, you've got the error bar above it, and those error bars have to overlap. Why? What's their evidence for that? Why have they arranged them in that order? Well, I'll tell you why. They've arranged them in that order because that's the order in which they evolved. Okay, track with me what they have just said. They have not ordered, organized them in the order of their age, even by their decisions on age. They've organized them in the order in which they believe they have evolved. And then the whole display is there to prove to you that they have evolved. There's a name for that type of description. What is it? Circular reasoning. Have you come across that? It is a logical fallacy known as circular reasoning, sometimes known as begging the question. And your high school textbooks are full of this stuff. This is clearly nonsense. They have assumed what they want to prove, and then they've used that to prove what they started by assuming they wanted to prove. It's circular. This is not science. The fossils are real, but it's not science. Let's look at the sorts of language that they use in descriptions of this. And I'm going to show you a number of uh, pieces of language taken from the Natural History Museum in London, which is illustrative of this. Look for the words probably or possibly, such as this uh, uh, exhibition about Pachycephalosaurus. Possibly, like today's rams and goats, Pachycephalosaurus engaged in headbutting contests to establish herd leadership. Have they seen Pachycephalosauruses headbutting each other? No. Possibly they may have done. We don't know. What they have is bones. You can't tell anything from the bones about their behavior. But now people leave the Natural History Museum believing that Pachycephalosauruses engaged in headbutting competitions. But they haven't said that. They've, got, they've used a get-out clause, which is the word possibly. We've got other ones like that. How about this one, using an unanswered question? This is a great way of, uh, of sort of giving you information that's not real information. An unanswered question. Let's have a look at this. Here's another uh, piece of display from the Natural History Museum. Come on, it's not working quickly enough. Let's go. Where's the text? Let's try again. Here it is. Remains of, this is about, um, this is about allosauruses. This is about an allosaurus fossil. Remains of these large hunters are hardly ever found together. Did they live alone like leopards, carefully avoiding competitors? Okay, so your high school student leaves here and they're asked a question. Tell me something about, um, how, uh, um, allosauruses lived. Well, they lived alone, a bit like leopards, didn't they? Does it say they lived alone like leopards? No. It says, did they live alone like leopards? This is really insidious to my opinion, but this is what they do. It's an unanswered question which is giving you false information. Do you see that? There's no information here. They've just got a skeleton. So why do they think it lived alone? Because the skeletons are found by themselves. Do elephants live alone? 
No, they live in herds, don't they? But you know when elephants die, an elephant that knows it's about to die will leave the herd and wander off and die on its own. So if the earth lasted and you found a, a fossil elephant later on, it would be by itself. The fossil elephants would be by themselves. Did elephants live alone? No, they lived in herds. So finding a dead Allosaurus by itself tells you nothing about how they live. It doesn't tell you that they hunted alone, and it doesn't tell you that they hunted in packs either. It tells you nothing at all, does it? But here's the information they've given you by an unanswered question. Are you tracking with me? Do you see the points I'm trying to make here? The real science is they found a fossil by itself. Then they've used imagination. The size of Allosauruses would make it difficult to chase victims for long periods. Did they use ambush tactics like the polar bear? Well, that's why you haven't seen any Allosauruses. They're all hiding behind the trees waiting to ambush you. <laughs> but all they've got are bones. You can't tell whether they ambushed their prey by bones. You can't tell that. They might have done. I'm not saying they didn't. Do you get me? I'm not saying they didn't do that. I'm saying you can't tell. This is imagination. Let's have a look at some other imagination because some displays in the Natural History Museum use actually multiple layers of imagination. They start with one piece of imagination, then the next piece of imagination builds on the first one, pretending it's fact. And here's a display that has no fewer than four levels of imagination. It's to do with the Deinonychus here. Deinonychus attacking a dinosaur, a, a plant-eating dinosaur called a Tenontosaurus. Let's see what they have to say about it. Fossil remains show Deinonychus to have been a fast, agile hunter, easily able to overpower smaller dinosaurs with its ferocious claws and teeth. Right. Now, I might allow them a little bit here. It is imagination, but you can, to some extent, work out that maybe it was a fast, agile hunter by looking at the shape of its feet and assuming that it may have run fast. But that doesn't necessarily follow. I'm sure that people could look at my skeleton when I'm dead and gone and see there's a skeleton of a human being able to run fast, and I can tell you I can't, because the skeleton wouldn't tell you about all this weight on here, would it? Okay, so that's imagination. And that's imagination. They definitely have claws and teeth. That's true. But talking, referring to them as ferocious, what justification is there in saying it was ferocious? Maybe it was a gentle little pussycat type of animal that would have sat nicely on your shoulder with its claws just over your, uh, over your shoulder while it nibbled your ear. But there's one level of imagination. Second level of imagination on that is this. The remains of several Deinonychus have been found near the body of a much larger herbivore, ten Tenontosaurus. Did they hunt it in a pack? Well, did they? Because, of course, they are fast and agile and they have ferocious claws. So because you found lots of them together, they must have been hunting it in a pack. You can picture the scene. The Tenontosaurus is running. All these Deinonychus is running after it, chasing it. Then suddenly they all drop dead and get fossilized. But then the third level of imagination on top of that, the brain of Deinonychus must have been well developed in the areas of sight and hearing, vital skills for pack hunters like today's lions. You see, they had great brains. By the way, these animals featured in Jurassic Park, except that the producers of Jurassic Park gave them the wrong name. These are the dinosaurs that in Jurassic Park they keep calling velociraptors, the problem-solving dinosaurs. But they're not velociraptors, they're Deinonychuses. They made a mistake in the production of the film. Velociraptors are much, much tinier, only about so big. Very tiny dinosaurs. 
so the ones that they were showing, it's about this height, were Deinonychuses. Uh, probably they could have been relatives. They could have been in the same kind, but I don't know that for sure. Uh, but they're now telling you that they've got good brains. But that's based on two previous levels of imagination. Can you see that? They've not based this on science. They started with one level. They've got ferocious claws and teeth, and they're fast and agile. Second level, they hunted in packs. Third level, because they hunted in packs like lions do today, they must have had good brains like lions do today. Third level, possibly Deinonychus packs hunted in the same way as African hunting dogs. They exhausted their quarry with a long chase and then all attacked together. Isn't that wonderful? All that from one set of bones. This is what I want you to understand. The real science is the bones and what measurements you can make of the bones. And maybe you're entitled to make assumptions about them being fast and agile, but you're not entitled to put this imagination together. Sometimes they use magic words. This is a a phrase that's been invented by um, my friend Mike Riddle. He talks about there being magic words. And a magic word, remember, in the fairy stories is a word that where it makes something impossible possible. Is that right? Something that cannot possibly happen. You give a magic word and it becomes possible. Did you know that evolutionists have magic words? Do you know what the magic words are in evolution? Millions of years. Because something that's impossible, they claim, can be possible if you just give it enough time. It's a bit like uh, Alice in Wonderland. You all, are you all familiar with Alice in Wonderland? Do you ever read that these days? Do children read Alice's Adventures Through the Looking Glass and Alice's Adventures in Wonderland? Some of you are nodding. Good. You're the really educated ones. You should. Here's a scene where the Queen and Alice are speaking. And I've just put one quote here, but let me just give you the full quote here. I'm just 101, five months and a day, said the Queen. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you, the Queen said in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the Queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. If you believe hard enough, the impossible thing becomes possible. And if you give it millions of years, it becomes possible. Basically, evolution is an Alice in Wonderland science. Let me show you why. Uh, evolutionary type scientists, and this is not biological evolution, this is your sort of Big Bang astrophysical stuff, they believe that the Earth was formed 4.5 billion years ago. And it formed by dust particles and rock particles sticking together by gravity and eventually forming a planet-sized lump. Have you heard that principle? There's a couple of problems with it. First of all, do rock particles flying around in space stick together today? If they did, you would be getting a new planet in the asteroid belt every so often, and you don't. But secondly, even if it did work, even if you could get a planet-sized lump, you've got a problem. It would have no structure in it. And of course, the Earth does have structure in it. It's got a core, it's got a mantle, and so on. There's structure there. How did that structure come about if all you did was bring these things together? Well, the uh, astrophysicists know that there's a problem there, so they think that 3.8 billion years ago, another planet, which no longer exists, about the size of Mars, hit the Earth. And of course, the two planets both melted and then started to freeze again in the correct order, with the iron in the middle at the core and so on. That happens all the time, as you're well aware. Any of you who play snooker or pool on a regular basis will know the danger of hitting the cue ball against a red ball and both balls melting onto the felt of the table. 
It never happens. It is complete nonsense. But because you stick 3.8 billion years there, they say it must happen. Because they've got to have an explanation for why the earth is the way it is. And they have to have an explanation that doesn't include God. And it is complete and utter nonsense. It's not just to do with Alice in Wonderland science. It's to do with Hamlet science. Hamlet science. So you're all familiar with Hamlet, Shakespeare's play, Hamlet. Here's a clip from the Shakespeare's Hamlet where Hamlet is pretending to be mad. It's a very important clip and it will make a very important scientific point. But I know that many of you these days don't read plays and don't see plays. Have any of you ever seen Hamlet here? Okay, so um, some of you have. You'll be glad to know that I found a, an episode, I found a production of Hamlet that has Doctor Who in it. What do you read, my lord? Word. <laughs> Word. Word? Yeah. What is the matter, my lord? Between you. <laughs> I mean, the matter that you read, my lord. Slander, sir. For the satirical rogue says here that old men have grey beards. Okay, I'm going to leave the clip there because he said the bit that I want. So now I'm going to, I'm going to show you on the screen what the, what it is that uh, Hamlet and Polonius are talking about here. Hamlet is pretending to be mad. And part of his madness is he is deliberately misunderstanding what Polonius has said. Very important point is going to be made here. He's deliberately misunderstanding Polonius. And, um, this is actually an Elizabethan joke. People in Elizabethan times, having seen that clip, would now be falling about laughing. But unfortunately, the language has changed slightly, so I'm going to have to do what you never do with jokes, which is I'm going to have to explain the joke. Here we go. Polonius says, what do you read, my lord? And Hamlet says, words, words, words. Isn't that hilarious? No? Well, obviously, he's reading words. Polonius is saying, what are you reading? So Polonius goes back, he says, what is the matter, my lord? Now, here's where the language has changed. You see, Polonius didn't mean, are you upset about something? He meant, what is the subject matter of the book that you are reading? Do you get it? And Hamlet, instead of saying, oh, I'm reading a book about um, uh, the early French Renaissance or whatever, he says, uh, he says, no. Uh, between who? What's the matter between between who? Which two people have got a, an argument? You know, is there an argument, a matter between two people? It's hilarious, isn't it? Honestly, if you'd been there in, uh, you'd been there at the Globe Theatre, you'd been rolling around, you'd be off your chairs now. Oh, it's brilliant stuff. Good old Shakespeare, encore. What joke's coming next? Okay, seriously, it is a joke. But it's a, it illustrates a language form called bait and switch. And I'm going to show you that in evolution. Here's some bait and switch from evolution. Okay. Come on. It's got stuck. Why has it got stuck? Come on. You can do it. There it is. Here's bait and switch. Good old Chuck Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands and he saw finches. And he saw finches with different sized beaks. And he assumed that those finches must have had a common ancestor. Some of them needed to eat insects. Some of them needed to uh, burrow into the trees to get the insects out. Some of them had bigger beets to eat seeds. He assumed, therefore, that um, those uh, finches had all um, developed from an earlier finch. Do you think Charles Darwin was right there? Yes, he was. 
The point is that that is not evolution. Because that does not require the creation of new information. But here's the thing. What does the word evolve mean? In the English language, the word evolve could actually be used here because the finches have clearly changed. Changed. The word evolve means change. And we use it that way sometimes. The creation ministry that I run has evolved. It has. It's not the same creation ministry that it was when I took it over. It has evolved. Do you get me? But when you're talking about the evolution of molecules to mankind, you're talking about something slightly different. It's a different meaning of the word evolution. And it requires the creation spontaneously of new genetic information. That might be evolving the English language use of the word, but it is actually not evolving in the Darwinian method that he later used. This is bait and switch. He was right. These finches did develop from other finches, but that's not evolution. If those finches had developed from an alligator, there would be something to talk about. But this is not evolution. This is simply change within a kind. And from that, we have developed other ideas saying that those creatures have a common ancestor. It's not the same thing because the word doesn't mean the same thing. It's called bait and switch, where you use two different meanings of the same word to equate two completely different concepts. Have you got that? That's what your biology textbooks are full of, absolutely full of, and you're going to need to spot that. Like It's like Hum- Humpty Dumpty saying, there's glory for you. And Alice says, I don't know what you mean by glory. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. He says, of course you don't till I tell you. I meant there's a nice knockdown argument for you. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. Is Humpty Dumpty right? Does a word mean what he wants it to mean? No. It is nonsense. And of course, uh, Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland, is making that point. Words do not mean what you want them to mean. They have meanings. And I know they change over time. And old people like me, get a bit irritated by modern uses of the wor- of words, like something that we like doing. We talk, we say it's sick. I don't get that at all. I don't get that at all. But I suppose words do change, but they still have to have meanings. They have to have meanings. Otherwise, there's no communication. And that brings me then finally to how we, how we actually use everything that I've just told you. Supposing you have a science article that looks maybe like this. Maybe the science article looks like this, and I've got this science article in my book, uh, Where Birds Eat Horses, and I've actually got some of these on the Mount St. Helens website that you can download for free to have a look at. I've uh, just put science articles which I've taken from elsewhere, and I'm using them under the fair use of, of, uh, of language. Here's one paragraph. What I'm now going to do is I'm going to go over this paragraph from this article, and I'm going to shade them in in different colors. The first thing I'm going to do is use what I call fuzzy words. They're the words like possibly, probably, or the unanswered question, or the use of imagination, where they're deliberately not saying what they mean, but giving you a sort of innuendo of fact that's not really there. That's the first thing I was talking about before. So I'm going to shade those in. I'm going to shade those in yellow. There you are. 
the gene could have given early human brains. Can you see how they're sort of putting doubt on their own phrase there? Um, here's a whole paragraph. Having extra copies slowed down the development of the brain, allowing it to forge more connections between nerve cells, and in doing so, grow bigger and more complex, researchers said. Because they can't quite say that this is the truth, so they have to finish off with the words researchers said. These are fuzzy words. So I'm going to start with fuzzy words where they cast doubt on their own language. Now I'm going to shade in the magic words. Uh, here we are. The magic words are in pink, two and a half million years. Have you got that? Uh, so I, I do the yellow words, the fuzzy words, where they're casting doubt on the own words. Then I'll go through the magic words, the millions of years. And then finally, I'll go through the words which are deliberately biased, where they have deliberately used bias. And I'm going to shade those in blue. Here's one. Leaving cousins such as chimpanzees behind. Cousins. Chimpanzees are our cousins. Well, that's bias, isn't it? They haven't proved that. This is supposed to be a scientific article, and they're not supposed to put words like that in without proving it. But of course they haven't proved it. They're just assuming that you will all believe that chimpanzees are cousins to human beings, so they've put that word in. Do you see what I'm saying? So I've looked for three different sorts of language. That's all I need to do. Pink, uh, Yellow words are the, are the fuzzy words. Pink words are the magic words. Blue words are the biased words, where they've, they've used bias. They have assumed here that brains develop. Why would we assume that a human brain develops? I think we're probably less intelligent than Adam and Eve were, not more. So slowed down the development is a biased word. Once I've found all the, uh, all those three types of words, I don't need a degree in science to do these. So once I've found the yellow fuzzy words, the pink magic words, and the blue biased words, I then go over every sentence that's got one of those in using a graphite pencil. There we are, because those those sentences that uh, have got any of those three colors in uh, have gone over with a graphite pencil. They can't be real science. Anything left in the article is real science, so that's real science. That paragraph, the gene known as SRGAP2, helps control the development of the neocortex, the part of the brain responsible for higher functions like language and conscious thought. It doesn't matter if you don't understand some of those words in there. You can be sure that's the real science, and you can look those up. That is genuine science. And if I could zoom out to show you the whole article, which you will not be able to read because the letters will be too small. In fact, when you look at the entire article, that's the paragraph there. All the rest of it has been shaded in, even the, even the title and the subtitle. That's the only real science in that entire article. And you can do that without having a degree in science just by being able to read and to look for those three types of words. The fuzzy words, the magic words, and the biased words. Well, to finish off, and we're doing well for time, to finish off, let's just look at how the Bible uses language, because the Bible uses language very differently. And we can finish this fairly quickly because I've already shown you this. Here's how the Bible uses the language for the gospel. Jesus Christ was crucified and raised from the dead. But if you remember what I taught you from 1 Corinthians yesterday, 1 Corinthians 15, there are three elements to the gospel uh, that the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Corinthians because that is founded on the fact that Christ was the one who created everything and that the sin of the first Adam led to death. That's our foundational knowledge without which we cannot understand why Jesus Christ, the last Adam, had to die a real death on the cross and why he would therefore be raised from the dead to conquer death. 
because that's the only way of undoing sin. You see, this is true. And if you already had that Bible knowledge, that would save you. That's, that's the gospel that saves you. If you already had that Bible knowledge, that would be saved. I, um, was mentioning this, uh, to Pastor Jim yesterday. Uh, he agreed with me. Uh, I'm thinking about, I was thinking about two time, two occasions when Billy Graham, the late Billy Graham, uh, visited Britain. He visited Britain for two major crusades, one in the 1950s and one in the 1980s. And even the 1980s is now nearly 40 years ago. But, you know, when this was first pointed out to me in the 1990s, it was still fairly recent. In the 1950s, Billy Graham came to Britain and lots of people were saved. Now, I'm not going to go into discussions about whether Billy Graham preached the full gospel or not, but I think it is undeniably true that there were many people saved in his crusades, and especially initially, okay? Regardless of whether you were, agree with every way that he dotted his I's and crossed his T's. Lots of people were saved in Britain in the 1950s. There are plenty of pastors and missionaries who date their salvation, in uh, British people who date their salvation back to the Haringey Crusades in the 1950s. Billy Graham came back in the 1980s. His message hadn't changed. It was the same. It was the same message. People were not saved. Hardly anyone saved in the 1980s. Why? Because Britain was not the same country. What happened in the 1950s is that British people already knew that bottom bit. Even if they didn't believe it, even if they weren't Christians, they knew that bottom bit because the Bible was taught in schools. It was talked about. Many people went to church and certainly lots of children went to Sunday school. They had a large knowledge of the Bible. Britain was a Bible literate society. It may not have been a Christian society, but it was definitely in the 1950s a Bible literate society. In the 1980s, hardly anyone knew the Bible. Hardly anyone knew the Bible. I was growing up in an era between those two. In the late 1960s, I can remember being in Sunday school, and there was a fairly large proportion of my school friends who were there in Sunday school. I would say about a quarter of my friends who were in a public school were also in Sunday school. Quarter. So it was less than half, but it was still a fairly large number. When my children, um, my older children, who did uh, spend some time in public school, um, when they went to Sunday school, there was nobody, nobody from their school was in Sunday school. Has America changed like that? Has America changed like that? I would hazard that it has. In the past, you could have preached just that middle bit, and you would have been okay, which is what Billy Graham was doing in the 50s, because they already knew that bottom bit. In the 1980s, Billy Graham preached just that middle bit. People weren't saved because they didn't know that first bit. And that's the difference, by the way, in the Acts of the Apostles between Peter's message in Acts 2 and Paul's message in Acts 17. Some people say they preached a different gospel. They didn't. Look at it. Read it. The Apostle Peter was speaking to people who were Bible literate. So he didn't need to tell them this bit. They already knew it. Peter knew his audience. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. But you know for a fact that in Acts 17, Paul preached Jesus and the resurrection. But he had to start by talking about the God who made the world. This ungod that you, this unknown God that you don't know about. I'm going to, I know him and I'm going to tell you about it. He had to go back. He had to tell them this bit. And then he told them this bit, which is why he could finish with that bit. That's the language of the Bible. The language of the Bible, the foundational knowledge on which the power of the gospel depends, leads us to be able to tell people about the hope of the gospel to come when God recreates a world in which there is no death and no sin. The language of the Bible makes sense. 
The language of evolution does not make sense. The language of evolution is talking about a world where birds eat horses, a world that did not exist, a world of imagination and unanswered questions. The Bible is a, is a world of answered questions because it tells you the truth. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.